You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 21. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. My Father, um, I ask that you would come now um, in a, maybe just a special way. I ask that you would come and Open our hearts to what you would say to us uh, through your word. I ask that you would come and um, do what I am unable to do, which is um, to speak your word boldly and courageously and, and truthfully if it weren't for, for, for your spirit at work. And so just ask, Father, that your spirit would be at work, that you would uh, purify the motivations of my heart, that you would apply uh, once again the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus over my heart as I preach that you would take my words, make them yours, and that you would do that not only for me, but for all of us in this room. God, I pray that you would take this final word from 1 Timothy and apply it to our hearts this morning. And I ask, Father, that you would set us free through the preaching of the gospel, that you would set us free from our sin, that you would set us free from what seeks to enslave us, that you would set us free from what hinders us. Father, that you would come now and do all of those things. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, these last five verses of uh, this letter that um, I've just read uh, are basically a postscript, okay, to the main body of the letter. Um, the reality for, for this letter that we've, um, that we've studied um, is that the main body of that letter most likely ended last week. So if you can uh, envision the sermon from last week, uh, the very end of uh, that sermon uh, and those verses was verses 15 through 16. Um, basically, the, Paul's big benediction, his big description of God. So that, that seemed to be kind of the pinnacle, like, like Paul just kind of ended the letter on a real big upswing. And then it appears to, I think, to most scholars that this, these last few verses are a postscript. He went back and read his letter to Timothy, and being that he didn't live in the time of typewriters and computers where you could go back and insert a paragraph, um, he realized that there was something he hadn't dealt with um, fully. I mean, he has talked about our wealth and our riches a lot in the letter, um, but uh, must have felt that he hadn't addressed it enough. And so writes this final postscript, which in some regards to me, even as I studied it, kind of felt like, hmm, 
kind of felt a little bit of a downturn um, as I read it. Not that, not that God's word isn't important. Um, you, just, you just get this big like crescendo or whatever you would call that of Paul's description of God last week, and then you go into this. Um, so my prayer, though, still is, is that as we study this postscript, that, uh, um, that God would do a, a work in our hearts and that he would reveal Christ to us um, in a way that maybe we hadn't thought of him. Um, and what I want you to start off noticing uh, in these verses um, is the way that Paul uses his words. Uh, I've talked about this often. Paul uses his words very intentionally under the inspiration of the Spirit. But in these verses, he uses the word for wealth, or the word for rich, or the word for riches at least four times, right? So you might look back at it with me. You're looking in verse 17, and I think in 18. He uses it four times, and he uses it four different ways too. Um, so the first time that you see the word pop up here is as an adjective, Okay. Trumpets were sounding. <laughs> Maybe Jesus was coming back. Wow, is that today? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> we'll let him preach this message. <laughs> so, wasn't in the special announcement, sorry. So, so, you see this word for riches or wealth, the rich, show up four different, four different ways, four times. First time as an adjective, okay? Um, when he says, as for the rich... In this present age, it's an adjective, it's describing. The second time uh, this word shows up is as a noun. When he says, uh, them not to set hopes on the uncertainty of what? Riches, that's a noun. Some place or thing. Um, third time shows up as an adverb. Describing an action. It says, charge them, set their hope on God who richly provides. Not just provides, but richly provides. The final time you see this word show up um, in these verses is as a verb, okay? Be rich in good works. Um, now, I might have lost many of you who barely made it through English class just like me um, in all of this analytical dissection, um, but there is something important here. Um, what we have here in these verses with those different usages of the word wealth or riches um, is we have a description of a kind of a person, right? You might ask yourself, what word would describe me? Take this thing down or up? What do you want me to do, Bryce? <laughs> the first thing we have then is we have a description of a kind of a person. So what kind of a person are you? We have the subject of something that is untrustworthy, right? Riches. We have the description of God's actions towards us, the way that he behaves towards us. Then we have a description of how we are called to behave towards others. So you see those four different uses of the word. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's just basically utilizing um, some awesome wordplay in regards to wealthy people, in regards to wealth itself, in regards to the character of God, and in regards to how we are called to live in light of all that. 
uses all of that wordplay to get his point across. So at this point, you might be asking, what's his point? Like, is his point really nouns and adjectives and adverbs and verbs? Uh, we all know that we use language to get our point across. So what is his point? I think there's four points. Every good preacher has four points. First one, check your attitude towards wealth. Check your attitude towards wealth. Verse 17, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what Paul is simply saying there in verse 17 is meant to be a warning. It's meant to be a warning that uh, helps us to check our attitudes regarding wealth. So think about your attitude regarding wealth. What Paul basically does is he instructs Timothy to warn the wealthy not to have an attitude that is either on the one hand prideful or on the other hand dependent on physical wealth. Instead, what we're called to be throughout the Scriptures is humble and dependent on our Father in Heaven who is the one that generously provides for us so that we can enjoy not just the gift that we've been given in riches, but to actually enjoy the giver of that gift himself. So it's basically a perspective check, right? Attitude towards wealth. The American way of life, um, for us, our culture, um, what we've been, I think, shaped by, uh, at its core, I think, is capitalistic and materialistic. Uh, the consumption of material wealth for the advancement of the so-called good life um, is one of what I think is one of the most one of the most destructive core values of our nation. Uh, money has a way of causing us to feel really important, or has a way of causing us to feel more secure, right? Uh, and the outcome of living uh, with getting those desires for a sense of importance or a sense of security, getting those desires fulfilled by money, when that happens, what happens in our lives is that we begin to live with an attitude of in money we trust rather than in God we trust. Follow? So when something as limited as money becomes the Almighty that we bow down to, then what happens is true Hope-filled joy gets stamped out by the pursuit of momentary happiness. Now, the reason for this is because what we're doing in those moments is we're trading down instead of trading up, right? Um, we're, we're trading the eternal joy that we could have in our Father in Heaven, and we're trading that for the momentary happiness that we can find in something that is not eternal. That's the picture of what it looks like to trade down rather than to trade up. It's the invitation of this passage is to trade up. It's to trade up for the eternal joy that we could have in our Father rather than trading for things that are going to go away. To that same point, one author um, commenting on this passage, he says this, he says that enjoyment 
does not mean self-indulgent living. Enjoyment does not mean self-indulgent living. It means God-indulgent living. See, the gift of riches, the gift of wealth, um, those gifts are an expression of God's gracious generosity towards us. The gift of riches, the gift of wealth, it's not an invitation to self-indulge or to self-enjoy. Like I said a minute ago, the gift of riches, it's an invitation to find true and lasting joy in God who is the giver of all good gifts. See, here's the thing. Your attitude towards wealth says a lot about your relationship with your Father in heaven. Your attitude towards wealth says a lot about your relationship with your Father in heaven. So what is your attitude towards wealth? Second point that I see in the text that I think Paul is trying to make is that we need to check our attitudes towards generosity. Check our attitudes towards generosity. In verse 18, Paul says that wealthy people are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So here's the reality. The first thing that God wants from wealthy people is not their money. The first thing that God wants from wealthy people is a servant's heart. He values a, a servant's heart more than he values money. You might say it this way. You might say that Active service should clothe every dollar we give away. But the problem in the church today is not that there aren't enough Christians. The problem in the church today is that there aren't enough Christians who are Christ-like in their giving. You think about God, Father. If our attitude towards wealth and generosity says a lot about our relationship with our father in heaven but think about god for a minute and a correct view of who he is just one point quickly god owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills too because he created them right so god owns all the livestock and God owns all the real estate. That's how wealthy God is. Pretty stinking wealthy. And yet, and yet, God chose to give His one and only Son. I have one Son. He gave His one and only Son to die on a cross for our sins. Our sins that usually take place with the things that God has created. Right? And He gave His only Son to die on that cross to pay the price for that sin so that we could then receive the richest life we could ever ask for for all of eternity. You see, the quote-unquote best life now, it's not about getting earthly health and 
earthly wealth and earthly prosperity. Your best life now is about where you're going to spend eternity. That's why Paul says that he wants us to be rich in good works. Be generous and be ready to share. This is what it means to use our material gain for godliness instead of using godliness for material gain. So the Christian's life, if you're a Christian here, your life is to be marked by good works and generosity and sharing with others in need. I believe that this kind of generosity, um, I believe that begins with the 10% tithe that we give to the church every time we get paid, and then I believe it extends out from there to the money that we give to support Christian missions, and then I believe it extends out from there beyond that to the money that we give away to people around us who are in need. As I study the Scriptures, that's the way I see that we are to practice generosity. So I, here's the way I like to say it oftentimes. I like to say that the 10% tithe is basically training wheels on the bike of generosity. It's what trains us to be generous. And then missionary support that we give away, that's basically when we begin to ride that bicycle of generosity without training wheels. Okay? And then from there, when we begin to share with the poor, the picture of what is happening there is we're actually getting off the bicycle and we're selling that bicycle so that we can then share with the poor. So that's the three circles of, of generosity that I see in the Scriptures. We, we can't take all the time that I'd love to to just nail that down. Be, be welcomed to be good Berean-like people and test that out. Um, I will say this, um, just from memory, not in my notes, but in support of what I've just said. If you look at Jesus, and I believe it's um, his preaching of the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, somewhere in the Beatitudes, I, I believe, somewhere in there, uh, he basically says... Um, hey, you've done really good in giving. You've done really good in praying, and so on and so forth. Um, he, he doesn't chastise them for their giving, and he also doesn't say, stop doing that now. Um, he says, you've done a good job. And so that, for me, in the New Testament, kind of gives me, um, I think, the support for preaching a 10% tithe as training wheels and a giving generously to mission support, and then outside of that, to the poor. Um, there are some other places I think you can go to, but just argue that out for a minute. Um, I think that's what generosity looks like. Here's the point, though. The point is this. Our giving of our wealth, um, it should be regular. It should be a regular basis. Um, it should be proportionate to what we bring in. So and when you think about this inside of a church family, well, you got somebody who makes 100000 a year, uh, and their tithe is what? Somebody give me the number, because I'm bad with numbers. Ten grand a year, okay? That should be training wheels. And then you've got somebody who, who makes $10,000 a year, right? Um, then that 10% tithe should be what? 1000 Okay. In that way, everyone pulls together. That's the proportionate side of things. So it should be regular. The way our family practices this is every time we get paid. Um, the first fruits, meaning the first 10% of our paycheck goes to the Lord in our church. 
starts there because we want to honor him in our money that he's given to us. A lot of times we have a tendency to think, it's my money, I earned that. No, God gave you that because he gave you the talents to work the job that you have. And if he wants to take it away, he could, right? So I would rather have God bless the 90% than to have him curse the entire 100%. Um, just principles that we've learned over the years, I will tell you that Christy and I, and our family, this, this didn't come natural to us when we first started following the Lord. It took us a number of years to trust the Lord in this way. Um, and yet God in his grace has done that work in us. So our giving, our generosity should be regular, should be proportionate. Uh, it should also be generous. Uh, there should be a generous sense to our giving, not stingy. And then finally, I think that our giving needs to be sacrificial. It should hurt a little bit when we are generous. Why? Because we serve a Savior who was generous enough to give his life on a cross for you and I, even though we didn't deserve it. So I think that in our generous giving, it should be sacrificial. And by doing so, what are we doing? We're modeling Jesus for a watching world. Right? Your attitude towards generosity. Point three, um, check your attitude regarding eternity. Verse 19, Paul says that wealthy Christians who live generously are actually storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The radical truth um, in this verse is that um, long-term financial security that is focused on this life it's really worthless. Long-term financial security that is focused on this life is worthless. Why? Because death is the ultimate mode of that earthly security. Can't take your wealth with you, but you can definitely make a deposit in the next life that is absolutely secure. Paul's use of the phrase, if you go back to verse 17, you see his phrase where he says, the rich in this present age. So that, that phrase, in this present age, it's, it's a reminder to us that there is a coming age, right? There's a coming age. And there's a kind of wealth in that coming age that is totally secure. So what is your attitude regarding eternity? How easy is it for you and I to slip into a trap of living only for earthly gain, only material consumption. See, the Christian who has a clear vision of eternity will live generously here on earth because that person is truly enjoying eternal life now, not just merely a good life now. What a freeing thing it is to think that way. To have that kind of a view of eternity. To be set free from the worship of the almighty dollar. See, here's the thing. Money makes a really bad God. Money makes a really bad master. And you can't serve both God and money. You can't. You can only serve one or the other. And money is a bad God. And it's a bad master. Here's the reason why. The promise of money last it doesn't last it never produces the lasting security 
or the lasting comfort or the lasting acceptance that it promises to produce. As soon as your money runs out, there goes your security. We all know what that's like, right? Most of us, I'm certain in this room, have experienced that. As soon as your bank account is dry, there goes what? Your comfort, gone. Dried up budgets don't attract a lot of friends. So the truly good life has absolutely nothing to do with health, wealth, and prosperity on this, on this earth. But driving, <coughs> driving a truck, though I want one so bad, will not fill the hole in your heart that's caused by sin. It just won't. A full bank account will not heal the sickness of greed inside of you. A larger home will not fix your broken family. A larger home is only going to give you more corners to hide out from your broken family members. <laughs> Sometimes that seems good. Yes. This is the problem of living with a distorted view of eternity whereby we just focus on everything in this earth. So the invitation of this passage is to check our view of eternity. Check your view of eternity in light of your attitude towards wealth and generosity. So your attitude towards wealth and your attitude towards generosity, your, your practice of those things is informed by your view of eternity. The proper view of eternity will inform the way that I think about and, and behave and feel about my wealth and, and, and generosity. An eternal view will always remind me, an eternal view will always remind me that I cannot outgive the God who owns everything. I can't outgive Him. Regardless of how little I have or how much I have, I, I cannot outgive Him. And at the same time, He has promised that I will have all that I need. I may not have all that I want, but I will have all that I need. That has been His promise all throughout the Scripture. So, what is your attitude towards eternity? thing that I see uh, in this text um, is that we need to protect what's most important. We need to protect what's most important. This is 20 through 21. Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. It's not that he's totally shifted direction here, although it would feel that way. That phrase, guard the deposit entrusted to you, you get a vision or a picture of pulling up at the bank window and dropping your deposit off, right? And you are entrusting that bank to take care of your money, right? You, you come back the next day to make a withdrawal and your money's not intact. What do you do? <coughs> God has made a deposit in each of us if you are Christian. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. He's, he's telling him, protect what's most important. God's made a deposit in you. 
Timothy is literally a safe deposit box who's been entrusted with the gospel. Now, a trustee is literally obligated to preserve a deposit unharmed and unchanged. A Christian's obligation is not to innovate or to reinvent or to re-envision or to reinterpret the gospel. Instead, a Christian's obligation is to cherish and to guard and to defend the historic biblical gospel. But Charles Spurgeon said that there are no that where there are no historic doctrines of grace being preached, there is no historic biblical gospel being preached. How are you doing with protecting what's most important? How, how easy is it for you to get caught up in a sideline argument, what Paul calls irreverent babble, that fails to protect what's most important? It's too common. I've been I've been on this for the last few weeks with us. Too common today for Christians to spout off over social media with all of their head knowledge that they have while deep down inside their private lives are full of spiritual corruption. Spurgeon said it best this morning in my devotion where he said, hey, these people are publicly saints and everything that they post, click, 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 talk, 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 babble, babble. But in private, our lives are corrupt. Rampant sin running amok. It should not be this way. What does Paul say? Because these people were in Ephesus too. They were captured by their pursuit of what is falsely called knowledge. And the problem with this false knowledge that was in the church um, is that these men were... were, were we're lacing it with just a tiny little bit of, of, of truth. Or maybe it was a lot of truth with a tiny little bit of false. And a little bit of cyanide in a really good drink kills you just the same. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? He tells him to avoid these people. Avoid them because they're swerving off the beaten path of gospel proclamation. So the historic gospel that Paul wants to preserve. The, the historic gospel that Spurgeon preached, the historic gospel that other faithful Christians have preached throughout the centuries, <clears throat> it's a message that reminds us that God created us to be with Him. That's how He created us. And then sin entered into the story. And that sin now is a barrier between us and God because He's perfect and nothing imperfect and come into the presence of that which is perfect, otherwise it gets eaten up. So our sin separates us from God. But thank you, God, for not leaving us there separate from all that is good, right? God Himself then sent His Son Jesus to pay the price. Why? Because our sin cannot be made right through all of our good works. You and I can never do enough good to make it right with God. Or, God sent someone perfect, His very own Son, to pay the price for us. He paid the penalty, the purchase price. You get the connections today? Between the rich and the wealthy and the money and the deposits, all of that. He came to pay the price, the ransom for us. Why? 
so that we could trust him and be in relationship with him. So how is your relationship with your father in heaven? Because when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the price for your sin. And if you trust in him, then what do you get? You get forgiveness and eternal life. It's a free gift that you get from him. Here's what your sin does. When you sin, you get a paycheck for it. You work for something. And and the paycheck for your sin is what? Death. Eternal separation from God. That's what you work for in your sin. But in salvation, you don't do anything to get something free. And the free thing you get is eternal life with your Father in heaven. It's the free thing that you and I get. That eternal life that we talk about, that forgiveness, something that doesn't just begin somewhere out in the future in heaven when I die here and go there. That eternal life that I receive by trusting in Jesus, it begins right now. It's a new life that I begin to live. Now I view my money, my relationships, my possessions, all of the things of this earth, like the scales have fallen off your eyes when this happens and you see differently. I once was blind, but now I see. Now you no longer live for the things of this earth. You now live in eternity. That's the picture of the gospel. Why would we ever want to talk about anything else? Everything else outside of the gospel is just merely coffee shop talk and social media banter. It's all it is. And it's worthless. And it doesn't save anybody. How are you doing at protecting what's most important? I want to take a bit to conclude, so... Um, after those four points. Like we've learned that we need to check our attitude towards wealth, right? Check our attitude towards generosity. Check it towards eternity. You need to protect what's most important. Uh, as I prayed through these this week, thought through these, I don't know about you, but I find that I fail in all these categories often. Uh, if you were hoping for a perfect preacher to stand in front of you and tell you how I knocked it out of the park, therefore you can go do the same thing. Um, you need to find a different church. And when you find that church, you ought to leave that church because that pastor is lying to you. <laughs> Jesus is the only one that could do this perfectly and preach it perfectly. That's the tension of preaching God's word. I fail in these categories often. Uh, I worry about money. I get stingy with money. I forget that there's more to my life than the things of this earth. I get caught up in little social fights. You doing gay? Good. Why do I? To the Garden of Eden. And I think it goes back to the story of Israel, too. Somewhere deep down inside of me, I still struggle with doubting who God is and Doubting who God says I am. That's the core. Somehow I, I still believe that that 
that fruit, that really juicy looking fruit of worry, somehow, somehow that fruit of worry, that's going to satisfy me somehow. As if, as if my worrying is actually going to add any dollars to my budget. I don't, I, I, I don't fully trust God. That's the confession, right? I don't fully trust God. I don't fully trust that He'll provide for me. And so I try to find security in being stingy with money instead of generous with money. I behave like Israel in the midst of all of this. I place my hope in what I think I can control rather than surrendering and placing my hope goodness, loving kindness of my Father in heaven. Like Israel, I look, I look around other families as, just as Israel would look around at other nations. Say, well, why, why don't I have what they have? What can I do to things that they're doing? They seem to be having a really good time. They seem to be really enjoying their wealth. Just, I'm just like Israel in this. When I do this, um, I fail to protect what's most important, don't I? Because the message of the gospel is most important. And what happens in these moments when I struggle in this kind of sin is I begin, to, I begin to think that my earthly existence is wrapped up in all of the external things going on in my life. So you think about this kind of confession of sin um, causes grief inside of me. Causes fear inside of me. Why? Because I know that sin brings dishonor to my Father. I don't want to dishonor my Father. It spreads like a disease in the deepest parts of my soul. And yet, at the same time, simultaneously, from somewhere deep within me, I'm reminded by the Spirit of God that this is the exact reason that Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come here for perfect people who aren't sick. Jesus' attitude towards wealth, his attitude towards generosity, they were founded on his perfect view of eternity. And all of that was illuminated by his relationship with his Father in heaven. When Satan tempted him with power, when Satan tempted Jesus with comfort, with security, with fortune, with fame, Jesus was able to resist the promise of those lies because he knew who and whose he was. Picture of Jesus. He was perfect. His identity was rooted in the truth. Deception didn't cause him to swerve off the road. Sin was no match for him. Satan couldn't conquer him. Jesus' purpose to live the perfect life in my place and then to die a sinner's death on my behalf, that was never in question for him. He never wavered from that. He never let up in his pursuit of offering his life as a ransom to pay the price for my sin. He looked at me back before he even created the foundations of the earth. 
Before I was ever even a thought, he looked at me and he knew me intimately somehow. He didn't just know about me. He knew me. Psalm 139 gives a description of a God who is everywhere at all times for all time. There's nowhere that you and I can run where we could get away from his presence. You go to the deepest parts of the ocean and God's presence is there. You go to the highest mountain and God's presence is there. Even if you go down to your grave, God's presence is there. He's inescapable. You may not know that. You may not believe that. You may not trust that, but it's true. Back before the foundations of the earth, Jesus looked at me and he looked at you if you've trusted in him. He looked at you if you sense that he's after you this morning. He looked at you, called you by name. He declared that you belong to him, that there is no place that you can run to. There's no place you can hide from him. There's no place that, no thing that you could ever do that could ever change his undying love for you. You see, the Scriptures teach us that for the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross for you and I so that our adoption papers, our adoption papers which declare us rescued from an orphanage of Satan's sin and death, those adoption papers that declare that rescue would then be signed in Jesus' priceless shed blood. This is all wealth talk. Every one of us, at the end of the day, is hopelessly orphaned by our wrong attitudes towards wealth. We're hopelessly orphaned by our wrong attitude towards generosity. We're hopelessly orphaned. <coughs> Away from God's presence. By our attitude towards eternity. By our attitude towards the gospel. But the awesome news of the gospel is simply that Jesus' attitude towards all of those things enabled his generous sacrifice at the cross of Calvary, his victorious death direction gives him the credibility to promise that this life is not all there is to our existence. That's the promise of the resurrection. That this life is not all there is. In all of this, we have a promise. We have a hope of a future in eternity. It absolutely blows the doors off of any earthly pursuit we could, we could follow. The wealth of eternity, the immeasurable generosity of my Father in heaven makes all the things of this earth look like a, a shabby, beat up, rusted out station wagon in comparison with the Cadillac of the gospel. Check your attitude towards wealth. Check your attitude towards generosity. Check your attitude towards eternity. Fight to protect what's most important, namely God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask uh, as we close that you would take the message of the gospel and apply it once again to our hearts, our minds, our lives. Father, remind us 
your great, undying, faithful, steadfast, trustworthy love for us. Come now, I ask, minister to us power of the Spirit as we close in song and communion. Trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.